First Timothy uh, chapter five, starting in verse 17. Uh, We've been going through the book of First Timothy, and one of the major things that we've seen in this book is that the church is to be a fortress of the truth. So Timothy's job as a pastor is to protect the church's doctrine and devotion. We saw that, I think it was week one in studying the book in the first seven verses there. So one of the ways that this happens is through the leadership structure of the church. We looked at these two scriptural offices of elder, and it's also overseer or pastor in scripture, and deacon. So Timothy, as an elder of the church, pastor of the church, is to be devoted to the public reading, exhortation, and teaching of the scriptures. He is charged to use God's word to shepherd God's people. Well, there were also some general instructions to the church, how the church should operate as a family unit, how the church should take care of one another. Look out for the widows among you who are genuinely in need and don't have family to take care of one another. Be careful how you speak to one another. You know, speak to older men as fathers and um, other people as brothers and sisters. So now as we continue, there's kind of some more general instructions in our passage today, starting verse 17. Um, We're going to look at how elders or pastors are to be treated. Uh, We're going to look at some insight into the ordination process, not just for pastors, but for deacons, missionaries, etc. And then we're going to hit a note of uh, purity and how we treat each other outside the church a little bit getting into chapter 6. So um, if you'll look with me at verse 17, I'm going to read verses 17 through 21, and uh, we'll dive in. So uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So here we see both the tasks of elders or pastors and the treatment of elders. So what are their two tasks? First thing we see here is ruling. Look at verse 17. Let the elders who rule well. I lightly touched on this last week. But I want to qualify the word rule here a little bit to avoid any confusion on on what the passage or what the scriptures teach in general. So 1 Thessalonians 5.12, and I'm going to mention several verses. If you want to write these down and go look later and do some study, that would be good too. Um, But I'm going to read uh, several excerpts here in looking at this. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. So... The words rule and are over you indicate authority. An elder is an authority figure in the church. A pastor is an authority figure in the church. So one of the key questions that we have to answer is how is that authority to be exercised? Because there's different ways that, that that can play out in the world and in the church. Well, Mark 10, 42 through 45, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and the context of it is that they're arguing about how to be great or who's greater. And this shows up in the other Gospels in similar um, situations. And, and, uh, but I'm quoting this one from Mark 10 because I think it gives us some helpful insight. Verses 42 through 45, <clears throat> Jesus says this. 
You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in the secular world, rulers exercise authority over or lord it over, and that's how they accomplish the task that their authority requires. But in the spiritual world, especially in the church, leaders do not do that. He says, this is how the world does things. You are to be different in the way that you exhibit your leadership. In the spiritual world, leaders lead by serving. And Jesus gives himself as an example of this. This is how he leads us, as he came and submitted to the Father's will to serve sinful people, to die for sinful people. And that's how spiritual leaders in the church ought to lead, is through that servant leadership. Last passage here to help uh, break this down. We looked at last week a little bit. First Peter chapter five. We looked at verses one through five real quickly. And the, the elders there are told to exercise oversight, not domineering over those in their charge, but being examples. So elders as the ordained pastor authority figure of the church, they are set apart for that role. They rule through a servant Leadership that does not domineer over or exercise authority over. Rather, they rule through their example and their teaching. So as the elder or pastor teaches, you listen to the teaching, you examine God's word to verify what they're teaching to protect the church's doctrine, and then you watch the example of their life and you imitate that as they imitate Christ. Now that's in a perfect world. Unfortunately, we live in a fallen world, and that doesn't always translate well. The pastor leads a life that maybe wasn't worthy of imitation here. Or the pastor said something that I don't see that in the scripture that he was teaching, and I think there may be error there. But in a perfect world, that is how it's designed to function. But there's two sides to this, this coin of ruling. The elders don't rule in an authoritarian way. They guide through their example and their teaching. But... There's an implicit expectation on behalf of the rest of the church as well. In today's passage, it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. This be considered is an outside action. It is something that is done to the elders. They are considered by the congregation worthy of double honor. Galatians 6.6 6 says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. When a sermon or a message or a general moment of teaching, Sunday school, when something strikes you and the Lord uses that in your life, the instruction of that passage is to share that with the one that has shared the word with you, to encourage them in that gospel work. Y'all have been really, really good uh, to me particularly in this. And that you will come to me, and I had a text from someone the other day that's memorizing Ephesians still, who said something very encouraging, and, and I'm, you know, I'm so glad that you're calling us to do this. It's been helpful in my life. That, like, I was on fire the whole rest of the day after hearing that. That, that really, God designs this to be a perpetual system of fueling one another in Christ. 
And as we sharpen one another, we encourage one another, we get excited about how one another's doing, and it builds itself up in love. It, like it spiral out, spirals out of control. So that's the idea there. 1 Thessalonians 5.12, we looked at a second ago. It says, respect those who labor among you and are over you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17 says this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. So the words here for the church are remember, consider, imitate, obey, submit. And don't look over the why here. For they are keeping watch over your souls as though who will have to give an account. So these are all actions of the church. The church is to honor and encourage and to share the good things and to consider and to think deeply about and to imitate and to model and to submit and obey to leadership. Now, here's what this does not mean. A church congregation has to do every single thing a pastor says. And the way that I think about this is kind of like the question of submission in marriage, because it's the same word to submit. And we see that in the marriage structure as well. So it doesn't mean in marriage that if the husband says, go make me a sandwich, that biblical submission means the wife needs to say, yes, dear. That is not what that means. In fact, if you say that, I expect to see a hand-shaped bruise right about here next time we talk. Okay, that that is not the idea of biblical submission. And it's the same thing with submission here. The elders rule through teaching and being worthy of imitation, not lording it over people in an, author, in an authoritarian sense of the word authority. When the elders rule properly, the church strongly considers their teaching, considers their way of life, so that they might obey and imitate what the Lord is teaching through those pastors. That's the design of how this ought to work and how we see it here. So that's the first task of pastors there is ruling. We keep looking in verse 17. It says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in. Here's the second task, preaching and teaching. Notice it says especially here. That implies that not all engage in this exercise regularly. Okay. What this means is that not all pastors, not all elders preach and teach. All elders rule. Some labor in preaching and teaching is what that means. It's also translated above all instead of especially above all. It's the idea that there are some who are called out and deserve this double honor because of this specific work. So this distinction between those who rule and those who rule and labor in preaching and teaching kind of blends over into how they're treated. So just like there were two tasks, there's two ways that Paul teaches us to treat elders here. Number one is honor. If you look at verse 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. So what is double honor and to whom is it due? Look at verse 18. Why should they be considered worthy of double honor? For, the scripture says, he's explaining why they should be worthy of double honor. 
And then he quotes Deuteronomy here. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And then he quotes Luke 10 here. The laborer deserves his wages. That's Deuteronomy 25, 4 and Luke 10, 7. So both of these verses are talking about provision. This passage in the Old Testament, this ox that treads out the grain and eats, the ox is used to engage in labor. And he says, don't muzzle the ox, but let him eat the things that he is stepping upon, basically. And this passage here in Luke, Jesus is talking about, and and these are the words of Jesus here, which is interesting. Paul is already quoting from New Testament books and saying this is scripture. And so Jesus is giving this charge to his disciples The laborer deserves his wages. Paul actually uses Deuteronomy 25 in another book. He uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. And this is one, I'm not going to read the whole passage. This is one you should go back and read. 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 18. Because he takes this Deuteronomy verse and unpacks it in a lot of detail. I'm not going to do that for us today. I'm just going to quote verses 13 through 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way? The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So what he's saying is just as the temple priests who served in the temple, they got their living by serving in the temple. They had all their needs provided for because that's what they were set apart to do. In the same way, let those who proclaim the gospel make their living by the gospel. Let that be what sustains them and provides for them and supports them. Now, Paul didn't make full use of that right. He actually is a tent maker, and he went out and worked so that he could tell the churches, I never accepted a dime from you. I only preached to you because I love you. But some of the other apostles did take advantage of that right. And we have pastors today who are bivocational or who preach at a church and they don't get paid. I've got a brother right now that I love in the Lord. And I know he preaches. And every Sunday morning I text him. He texts me. We give some encouragement. And he he is not a full-time pastor at this church. He has other things that he does. And then he gives us time to that. So the situation here can vary to a degree. But the idea is that the church should seek to do that for those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the double honor here is not just an honor of acknowledgement. I'm honoring you, not out of a submissive, but also in a financial way. That's the double honor. All elders are to be honored. Some elders, especially those who preach and teach, should receive the double honor. And that's the financial provision there. So putting it in layman's terms to kind of summarize this, there are these elders who are not paid who rule. That's a single honor. There are these elders that are paid who rule. That's a double honor. And then there are these elders who are paid who rule and preach and teach. That would be what I'm engaged in. Terry would be a good example of this elder that is helping to rule and is getting paid for it. So in verse 19, we see the second way that elders ought to be treated. And this kind of flows from the idea of honor. Verse 19 says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the second way that we need to treat our elders, our pastors, is with careful evaluation. And I understand that this is going to be a sensitive thing for us to discuss here. 
but follow with me on this, okay? Many Southern Baptists, many in Southern Baptist life, treat this verse in practice like it stops after verse 8. Like it reads, do not admit a charge against an elder, period. In practice, many in Southern Baptist life treat the verse like that. The idea is that the pastor is almost like a Baptist pope who is above uh, above approach in the sense that you don't dare say that the pastor has done something wrong. Okay, Many view the pastor this way, but that's not what the pastor is. A pastor is a man. Called by God? Yes. A man? Absolutely. He's not perfect. Sometimes churches will err on the other side. And instead of never accusing the man of anything, though he should be, rightfully, they will accuse him of everything. Someone says something and it just catches fire. And everyone's talking, oh, did you hear? Oh, I think, oh, and it catches fire. And he's constantly under fire. They'll accuse their pastor just like a loose cannon. And what Paul is instructing here is somewhere in the middle. It's a careful process of evaluation. He's saying, yes, accuse Bring a charge against an elder, but you better make sure it's on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, this isn't just a random number here. He's getting this from an Old Testament principle. When someone testified, you couldn't just go off the testimony of one person. You needed two or three witnesses. And that's where Paul's getting this from. So what this does is this protects the pastor from false or exaggerated accusations while still holding him accountable to credible, rightful accusations. When an elder has a charge brought against him, he can do one of two things. He can repent and turn, hey, I've got this charge against you. I'm, I'm sorry. I should not have sinned against you and the Lord. And repent, or he can persist. And if we keep reading... We see for the ones who persist, they have this credible charge brought against them. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. This is called a public rebuke. This is something that is done in public in front of the rest of all. Why? So that all the rest may stand in fear. Many churches, Southern Baptists, have historically failed to do this in one embarrassing area. And it's with sexual abuse. The Houston Chronicle, a couple of years ago, came out with this article looking at all these Southern Baptist churches that had these charges of sexual abuse and just swept them under the rug for the protection of their pastor to keep his name from getting drugged through the mud and help their pastor, you know, I'm sorry, and they help him find another church and give a good recommendation, and then guess what happens? It happens again. Part of the reason why we see that is because we've ignored this charge in Scripture. The result is that the rest of the pastors don't stand in fear and they fall into the same sin. So Paul warns us to keep these things without showing partiality, without showing favoritism. 
to charge these things. Don't bend the number of credible charges rule or the public rebuke rule or the you know him and that's just not him or because, well, this is going to ruin his life or I don't want to be harsh. We can't bend things for our pastors when they have fallen into that level of sin. It's very important. The men who sign up for this task, me included, know that this is a sacred calling. I know that in James 3, it tells me teachers are going to be judged more strictly. I understand that. I know that in Hebrews 13, 17, I know that I'm going to have to give an account to God for how I lead the congregation, whatever congregation he puts me over. I get that. And every other man in that position gets that as well. They're teachers of the word. The fear that is generated from this public rebuke, the threat of public rebuke, will protect pastors from falling into sin. By taking it away, we are removing a barrier of accountability. I'm going to give you an example. There's a man, Randy Alcorn. Anybody ever heard that name before? Randy Alcorn. He has written countless books, countless, countless books, New York Times bestseller. He's got a ministry now. He was working in it. I'm not going to explain the whole situation. He's got a ministry now. Uh, empowering. I don't remember the name of it. Anyway, he wrote this book called The Purity the Purity Principle. And the purity principle is um, impurity is always dumb. Purity is always smart. I think is what it is. Real simple. And you're like, oh, well, that, that makes sense. This book, uh, someone, it was actually recommended to me by a friend first. And then I read it in seminary as uh, part of the pastoral class, I think. And this is one of my favorite books, not just because it's short, which I appreciated, okay? but it packs a punch. If you'll notice, I'll leave it up here and you can come see, but I highlight the bottom edge of my pages green for any page I want to refer to in the future. And this small book, it's almost just a streak of green across. He has so many good things to say. Well, he wrote an article recently. The article title was Randy Alcorn on Evangelical Sex Scandals. Bad pastors just reappear at new churches, repeat sins. Really good article. If you want to go read it, come and get me later, and I'll, I'll help you get a link to that. But in the purity principle, in, on pages 22 through 23, I'm going to read a little excerpt of this for you. He says, <clears throat> one of our church's elders admitted to me, there have been times when I've had serious temptations toward adultery. I'd like to say that my love for God and for my wife were enough to keep me from falling. But it came down to sheer terror. I was certain that if I traveled that road, God would let my life turn miserable. So then Randy says, he's a wise man, a man who acted in his own best interests. He knows impurity will be punished and purity will be rewarded with heaven's payoffs. It would be a lousy trade. He was too smart to make it. Is that a lesser, unworthy motivation? No. This brother never fell. He never shipwrecked his family. He never shamed his church. He never broke his wife's heart. He never devastated his children. He never trashed his ministry. Do you think his wife and children are grateful for the fear of God that kept him pure in the face of dark temptations? Absolutely. The fear of God shouldn't scare us out of our wits. It should scare us into them. 
The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. Proverbs 14, 27. So the fear of God shouldn't scare us out of our wits, but into them. It provides a barrier of accountability where we say, I need to treat this more seriously. Well, when the church neglects to execute this public rebuke in appropriate situations, what it communicates is there's really nothing to be afraid of here. And it encourages further sin. This is why God tells us to confess. This is why God tells us to exercise church discipline. He wants us to treat sin seriously. Accountability and the fear of the Lord is a tool that God purposes to shape us into the image of Christ. He is trying to mold us into something that we don't want to be. So what we need is accountability. I just went to the Louisiana Baptist Convention yesterday, and they had the skit guys there. If you've never heard of them, it's two guys that are pastors, and they do these hilarious skits, and it always has a biblical meaning to it. Well, one of them, the guy is saying a prayer, and the other one comes up behind, and he's playing God in this. And he's got like a little etching tool type of thing and a hammer, like a chisel. And so you bang on it and make a statue. So the guy's praying. He's like, God, you know, I want to be more like you. Amen. And the guy comes up. And he's like, hey. He's like, oh, what? And he said, oh, I'm God. I'm here to make you more like my son. He's like, oh, okay, yeah, great. Well, he holds this chisel up and starts banging on it. He's like, oh, no, what, what are you doing? He's like, well, I've got to get this out of your life if you want to look more like my son. And the idea is that God's shaping us is a painful process sometimes. But that's what he has called us to. He is trying to rid us of our sin. He does that on the cross so that I am legally free from the wages of sin. But that doesn't mean that I just live the rest of my life saying, okay, well, it's all good. No, God then wants us to discipline ourselves, to turn from sin, to look more like his son. And this is one of the ways he does that. God wants us to know that he treats sin very seriously. And we know that because he sent his son to die to get rid of it. So it's a big deal. So kind of moving towards the end of the passage here, he gets done talking about elders and what their tasks are and how we are to treat them. And then in verse 21, he says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. It's a serious call. So now verse 22. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So here Paul is instructing the church about ordaining leaders in the church. I believe this is not just referring to elders, but to deacons, missionaries, anyone who the church would call up and say, God is calling them out for service. We're going to lay our hands on them and pray for them so that they might go and serve the Lord. He says, don't be hasty in this laying on of hands. The instruction is just slow down. Why? Because going slowly is going to reveal the hidden fruit in a person's life. And he gives two examples. Number one, going slowly is going to reveal bad fruit in someone's life. He says some sins are obvious. You look at it on the surface and you think, oh, well, that's obviously sin. But there's some sins that are not so obvious on the bat, right off the bat. They come out later. 
as you get to know someone, you start to notice things you didn't notice initially. And he says, you will not be able to keep those things hidden. They'll come out eventually. So in this ordination process, we're fixing to go through the process of ordaining deacons, hopefully soon, Lord willing. And you'll notice, you may think, well, man, this is going to take a little while. That's exactly the point. One of the qualifications is that there be a period of testing. There's an interview process. We ask questions. We provide their names to the church so that the church can give their examination and their understanding of who this person is and if they qualify. It takes time to do that so that these things can be exposed. But notice it's not just the sin. It also reveals the good fruit in a person's life. He says that some good fruit is obvious, but there's other fruit that's not so obvious. And if you give it time, it'll come out. You'll know that this person is doing these good things. This is why we have all of these qualifications. If you're hasty, you risk ordaining an impure candidate. And in doing such a thing, it says that you are taking part in the sins of others. He tells Timothy to keep himself pure. So he gives a little side comment, and it makes sense because this is a letter. Paul's writing a letter to Timothy. And when he mentions keep yourself pure, there's a little parenthetical statement there in verse 23. Kind of as a side note, he tells Timothy to no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So this is kind of odd. I don't think this is anything we should build a doctrine off of here. He says, drink a little wine for the sake of your ailments. What we do know from this is that apparently in Timothy's pursuit of purity, he avoided alcohol. That's that's the implication. Keep yourself pure. But you need to start taking a little bit of wine because your stomach and your ailments needs to be treated. So that tells me that Timothy, whether it's right or wrong, in his pursuit of purity, avoided alcohol. This verse isn't a direct prohibition, but it also isn't a direct excuse and to say, okay, well, it didn't prohibit it. So we should go ahead. If anything, I think we look at this verse and we say, man, it speaks a lot that Timothy in his pursuit of purity avoided alcohol. I think it also speaks, I've had Christians that ask before, well, what about the use of medical marijuana? Like, I know that we shouldn't, you know, do that, but like if my doctor prescribes, and I think this verse helps us out. Paul says, Timothy, you're sick, and there's all this stuff in the water that needs to be eliminated, so you need to take a little bit of wine to help your your, uh, physical ailment. So in, in kind of wrapping all of this up and saying, well, what is God's word for us through this passage? When I look at the church as a whole across America, both individual Christians and whole churches, there is a dangerous trend that is developing. And our temptation is to say, well, that's other churches. That's not us. Make no mistake about it. These things spread. Ideas are kind of like viruses, whether good or bad. They take hold and they spread rapidly and it multiplies. And the trend that I've seen in churches and in Christians is the trend of treating some of the things that we're talking about here less and less seriously. A lot of churches are beginning to abandon traditional church leadership and government models. A lot of Christians are ignoring the process of sanctification. That's this gradual process of looking more and more like Christ, this taking off the flesh and putting on Christ. They're ignoring that. 
and they're embracing, well, God is love and that's all that matters. As we near our end of the study in 1 Timothy, what we've seen is that God is the exact opposite. He treats all of these things very seriously. He gives us very strong warnings. Encourage, teach these things in the presence of all. And in front of God and the elect angels and Jesus Christ, I'm telling you to do these things. Instead of less structure and less seriousness regarding how we talk to one another, how we treat one another, God desires more seriousness. So many of us are hungry for revival in the church. We look back over the history of our country and we think, man, what if God would bring this new wave of revival? And we plan these moments and try to orchestrate these great moves of God. Well, yesterday in the convention, the theme was change me. And the word me was all caps and it had circles around it. The point is that they were making, I think I agree with this, is that widespread revival follows personal revival. And that so many of us desire revival because we look around us and we see how much revival everyone else needs. And the fallacy in that is that we're all ignoring the revival that maybe we need personally. So the idea is that if you, and it's the same thing in marriage. I heard a marriage counselor once that kind of hit on the same thing. He said, instead of thinking about all the things your spouse is doing wrong, why don't you just worry about you doing all of your things right? And as you both do that, you will both grow in maturity in those things. And I think it's the same thing with revival. If we want revival... By definition, what that means is that something has to change. If I need revival, that means that there's something that needs to change. If that wasn't the case, we wouldn't need revival. We are not going to see revival in ourselves until we ramp up how we treat our faith. We see these harsh instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So we're to entertain accusations against a pastor? Yes, if there's two or three witnesses, you better. And if he persists in his sin, publicly rebuke him so that the rest stand in fear. God treats these things seriously. We should treat these things seriously. Purity. Seeking the Lord. How we operate as a church. These are important matters. And we can't treat it lightly. So around the start of the year, we're going to look at how we can do that by studying the spiritual disciplines. I'm really excited to do so. There's a book that I'm going to recommend, and I've even considered ordering some copies and having it available that we're going to go through. Um, I'm excited for this, and I hope that you're up to the challenge to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And what this is going to require is that you don't take your own faith for granted. You start from a level saying, okay, I need personal revival. And if we all can start from there and start to treat some of these things seriously in our faith, I think that we will see a wave of revival as God revives each of us individually. The church itself will see that revival. Does that make sense? Good. Let me pray for us. God, as I look to how seriously you treat sin and how you tell the church to treat sin. As I look at the high calling that you have placed upon pastors, that they ought to teach well, that they're preaching and teaching, they're worthy of this double honor, but that also comes 
with this accountability of this careful examination. Father, I pray that you would create that sense of holy fear, not this terror of you that we can't approach you. But this healthy fear of you that recognizes that you treat sin very seriously. We see that, Father, in how you've given us your son. That you sent him to bear the weight of our sin so that we might not bear that weight. So, Father, what we ask you to do is to create in us this fear of the Lord that drives us closer and closer to you rather than further away. We want to be close to you and we want to look like your son. Father, would you expose from within us these hidden fruits as we're busy in our day-to-day lives. We don't take the time to look for these things and we miss them because we don't examine them carefully over a period of time. I pray that you would expose those things to us, these areas that we need to turn from, and these areas where you're working in our lives to encourage us. Father, we want to look more like your son for your honor and for your glory. We pray for revival in our church. We want revival in Gina. We want revival in all all the other churches as well. Father, but right now we are asking you to bring out personal revival in each of us. Would you cause us to treat our faith that you have handed down to us through the apostles and prophets seriously, standing up for the truth of your word, handling business in the church in a wise, godly way, treating one another like family out of our honor and reverence for you. We love you. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and for his glory. Amen.